Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to the Growing Band Director podcast. My name is Kyle Smith, and joining me is my friend and colleague, Jeff Smith. Our mission is to share practical advice and explore topics that will help every band director, no matter your experience level, as well as music education students who are working to join us in the coming years. Together, we will discuss many aspects of a well-rounded band program, but most importantly, we will discuss concepts that help us all improve our own programs each and every day. Always remember the famous quote by Ray Kroc, when you're green, you're growing, and when you're ripe, you rot. Let's get started. Welcome back, everybody, to the Growing Band Director podcast. Uh, This is episode number 68. We're very pleased to have Dr. Robert Grogan with us from uh, Cobb County Schools. Um, And remind us, Robert, what's what's the school that you teach at? I teach at Barber Middle School in Ackworth, Georgia. That's right. We're uh, super excited to have you on here because I was just checking out on Facebook that you had a presentation that happened yesterday uh, at Georgia Allstate or Georgia Music Convention. What's the right terminology? Yeah. GMEA. Georgia Music. Um, And it's, what's the title of it? Oh yeah. Classroom Management for the Modern Middle School Band Director. And I'm like, I saw a couple of your quotes and I'm like, this guy speaks my language. So we need to, (laughs) we need to hear all the things that you have to say. Um, and you're doing it again in Georgia. I mean, in, in Utah this coming week. So, um, really excited to have you here. Thank you for being here. Um, yeah. So can you give us a, I'm going to start with a quote that you have in here that I just really struck me as something that I agree with. So I wanted to kind of lead off that before you start your intro. Um, you say in here that it's important that as teachers, we're firm and consistent on the podium and we're approachable and relatable off the podium. Right. Um, I, I think the foundation of of saying that, I, I think it has to do with building relationships and um, and approachability. I, I really do think that what you can expect out of a child is really proportional to the trust you build with them. So so we must spend a lot of time building that trust getting to know them, getting to know things about them, and not just that, but also letting them know things about ourselves. Uh, for example, in, in my office, myself and my coworker, we have all of our nerdy stuff up in our office. Uh, Brad's got his Lego things in the office. There's lots of Star Wars things up in the office. And there and it's actually is sort of a conversation starter with children. Mm-hmm. They'll come in and be like, oh, you guys like Star Wars. And what is it, it's doing is it's it's humanizing us to them. Mm-hmm. And so that it's kind of like that olive branch and building a relationship with them. Then the other component is firm and consistent. And hallmark of classroom management is just, I like the phrase dogmatic consistency, um, just being very consistent um, in a way that you're predictable to children in a rehearsal when you're on the podium, because when you're predictable to them, it's a, it's a safe place for them. Mm-hmm. And I, there is a difference between running a predictable rehearsal and being predictable. I'm sure we'll get into that, how your warm-ups right. and all that are not going to be very predictable all the right. time, but you yourself are predictable. Absolutely. Um, you know, t- taking role, talking to them in a calm voice, never speaking over the children. Um, and just that interaction, they should know what they expect. Of course, you adjust your warm-ups depending on the repertoire and what you're working on that day. Um, but... It, it, it shouldn't be like the moment you step on the podium, they don't know if it's going to be crazy you <laughs> or, 
or or somebody that they they can feel calm and, and trusting of. You know, sure. cra- crazy me comes out a little bit. I get really animated with the music, but but you know when when I'm talking to the kids and we're we're starting class, raise your hand if you guys know if anybody that's not here today. It's a very calm, and I, I purposely try to be very soothing when I talk to them. So let's start with a little bit of an introduction about your teaching career and your program. Sure. Um, well, Barber Middle School is in Ackworth, Georgia. The most I've been there for 10 years. Most of the time I've been there, it's been a Title I school. We are on the border. We we go back and forth. Right now, we're about 53% free or reduced lunch. Um, there are roughly 850 students in the entire school, so it's a pretty small school. However, we consistently have about 400 kids in the band program. Wow. Uh, the band has received some invitations to some invited performances. And last year, uh, really special to me, uh, we were um, one of the national winners for the William Foster Project um, Award for Excellence. And what they do is they try to find um, high achieving bands that are in marginalized communities and at risk communities. And they try to recognize those programs. Uh, so that's something I'm pretty proud of. Before um, before Barbara, I came from Utah and I, I started teaching in Utah, um, at first out in the desert and then uh, metropolitan Salt Lake City. But I'm actually originally from Georgia and Cobb County. So coming back to Barbara Middle School and Cobb County Schools was coming home for me. Great. What high school do you feed? North Cobb High School. North Cobb? Yes. Great. And so, is that in the same county as um, Pope, where you're originally from? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I went to Pope High School. Yeah, I, I know. I know you went to Pope, but I, because when I started teaching and everything, that area was just exploding as it got bigger and bigger and bigger with more and more high schools. Right, right. There's a lot of fantastic band programs from Cobb County, yeah. um, Pope and Lasseter, Kennesaw Mountain, Harrison. A lot right. of very well known high school band programs. All right, let's start with um, some, are we good to go on to the musical ensemble classrooms today, like describing that and your introduction to this presentation that you're giving? Sure, absolutely. Well, that was just an introduction. And um, the point I made in my presentation about music ensembles and teachers today, um, pretty consistently what the research says is that more and more new teachers are finding that um, that they're underprepared for classroom management. Yes. That that is really the biggest hurdle when they first started teaching it. And a lot of them are reporting that they didn't even realize how much of the job classroom management is. And and having those feelings that they they um wish they were better prepared. Um, I do make the point in my presentation, I, I really feel like classroom management is a skill. It's not something you have or you you don't. It's, it's kind of like jazz. You know, um, people that um, poor advice in jazz is saying either you have it or you don't. You, you improvise or you don't. But how you learn jazz is you learn, emulate people, learn a couple licks, learn a bag of tricks. And it's a skill you develop over time. And it's just like classroom management. Um where you learn a couple tricks, you learn how to navigate, you emulate people, and it's not something that you have or you don't. And and that's how, how we let off with. 
I love one of the quotes that you used later as well. And you used it earlier as we were introducing too, where you said, I never talk over the children. I think that's right. a really, that's a really powerful thing that you know that if they're speaking, you're not going to speak in class, can't continue until they are, they're behaving. Yeah. I bet you, if you walk into your band room, it's a, is it a pretty silent rehearsal when you're on the podium? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty silent. Um, I, I, I don't like, um, having little automatons where I'm expecting complete silence the whole mm -hmm. time. You know, I want them to be able to laugh with me and have a good time and interact with me. Sure. Of course. But, um, I, I would say that I've gotten a lot better and everything I do, let me just a caveat to that is from learning from lots and lots of mistakes and reflection mm -hmm. over time. And none of this information is new, but having said that, I've gotten a lot better about learning to engage the ch children when I speak to them. So let's talk about some of the, um, the best practices for managing classroom management, classroom behavior, sorry, managing behaviors in classroom management. Right. I think some of the practices, some of the standard things that um, new teachers do learn is like greet your students at the door, learn their name, share their entrance, interest, um, show a sense of humor with them. Um, I think you can take it a little bit further than that by um, there's a term that we use teacher efficacy, which is your belief that you can change the outcome of a learning environment. Mm -hmm. And I think if teachers believe that they do have control over what happens in the room and they have that attitude and we start with that, I think that goes a long way. Um, what I tell my student teachers is that try to think about everything in the room is has to happen with your approval, that you are in control of everything that happens in, in the room. And just if, if you don't approve of a behavior, if you don't approve of um, a posture or whatnot, what are your tools to address that and hold children accountable? And um, the, the way that late, we're, we're a PBIS school, so we do that positive uh, reinforcement. And, mm -hmm. and the way that I like to see the student teachers hold the children accountable and people who come in the band room is really to focus on what is right before what is wrong. Um, and the way you do that is I like how all the trumpets are sitting. I really like how Susan is holding her instrument and just give them a lot of that feedback because children have this emotional bank account and you have to make sure that you're making enough deposits. So in case you have to take a withdrawal of please sit with good posture, you know, in case you have that, you have plenty of deposits that you've um, made with them. Um, so we, we talk about the three to one ratio for every um, correction, make sure that you've said three positive things to a child um, and, and that type of positive intervention and that type of positive in interaction we try to have with them. So the, you have a, a comment on here that resonates with me. I want you to explain it a little bit more if you would. Um, it says teachers who do not take responsibility for their classroom environments are often the ones who complain the most about students and have <laughs> poor management skills. Where does that come from? Right. That's, that's, that's the teacher break room. That comes entirely from the teacher <laughs> break room where you, where you walk in and they might not necessarily be fine arts teachers. And you walk in and you hear a lot of the term, these 
kids, you know, and, and, and to me, that's never really resonated with me. I've never felt comfortable engaging in those conversations. I've always wanted to feel like I've had more control over the situation. Um, it, it seems to me when, when teachers start talking like that, they totally give up control. Mm-hmm. They're at the mercy of whatever behaviors are happening in their classroom. Um, and, and so I've, I've never really necessarily liked that attitude or much less the teacher break room. <laughs> and, yeah. And in general, I know I started going there to microwave my lunches because we have a, right. we, had a we had a fire like what, 18 months ago. So we can't have a microwave in the band room anymore. So I have to go to like the teacher room. It's, I've actually met some of the teachers. It's been cool. Jeff, I know I'm supposed to be in the teacher room more. I understand I'm supposed to eat in the teacher room. I, however, I usually don't. So I've done it more and more because of the fire. <laughs> Well, for 35 years, I did the eat in the teacher room every day. And exactly what Robert's saying occurs. You could actually divide the room in thirds. You had the third that went with the talking about those kids. You had the third that was just totally burnt down. It says, oh, my God, I can't wait to go home. And then you had the third that said, boy, did you know that Johnny so-and-so and Susie so-and-so did this? And how it's reflecting in all their other classes? And I always went to that table and sat there because I wanted to hear what people had to say good about the kids so I could bring that back into my classroom and say, hey, I hear you uh, won the uh, cross-country competition last week. That's really great. Or you won the art competition the other day. Or you you read a poem the other day. It was really fantastic. So that, that was the way, of, as you said, with the bank account, you cash in the positives. So when you have to make the withdrawal, it's not as big a deal. Right, right. And and. Really, it is a hard enough job, and and we can make the decision to surround ourselves by positivity or not, because teaching is difficult, and I I, I just rather surround myself with what's right. One of the phrases that I've always heard and tried to do is the phrase that says, praise the student in public, criticize the student in private, meaning if there's something that you really need to deal with with a kid that you do it one-on-one or in a small group setting. But if you say good things about a child, then saying it in front of their friends or public or whatever is a really, really big deal. I assume you subscribe to the same thing. Oh yeah, and I've observed master teachers do that. Really, really there's a teacher in my school district that teaches at a really high poverty school. Um, and his name's Brian Nichols. And I've watched him um, just take, take a kid and talk to him in the corner of the room while his co-worker was rehearsing the band, but it was exactly what was going on. He did it. it the child didn't feel embarrassed. I'm sure it was a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, when, whenever I, whenever I have to have that one-on-one intervention with a child, the first thing I always ask them is, do you know why I'm talking to you? Just to make sure that they understand, because it, it should be a learning moment for them, not just I'm mad at you, here's this consequence, but here's the learning moment, here's what we would like to see. And then the next day, don't forget it so you can praise them for improvement. Mm-hmm. I watched this one guy one time, he was in a group rehearsal, and there was definitely a child that was acting up, and he was not a person that just stayed right on the podium all the time. He moved around the room all the time. So he was working on a section, and you could see that he was purposely moving towards the child. And he, he whispered something in the child's ear, and he came back to the podium and got to work. That child stood up straight, did everything perfect for the rest of the rehearsal. Never asked him what he said, but whatever he did, the kid was smiling and doing exactly 
what his or her responsibilities were at the time. Oh, wow. I, thought that, I thought that was a really cool way of addressing a situation quickly because some teachers like to just glue themselves to the podium and others like to move around because that way you get to see interact with the kids while you're rehearsing at the same time sometimes. Right. And this guy dealt with it right away and nobody would knew for nothing. A couple of the teachers, we were sitting in the back and we said, that's a master teacher. That teacher wow. took care of the problem and there was never anything to worry about. He never brought it up and he was a guest conductor and never brought it up as a problem or anything. Yeah, I wonder what he said to the child. Uh, yeah, and it was a smile, and the kid smiled back. And so, but boy, I was so impressed. Wow. So one of the procedures that I like to do when I start the year is um, I don't let the kids walk in the band room the first time. They kind of stand out in the lobby, um, and I get make sure they're all there, ready to go. And then I'll tell them what we're going to do first. Okay, we're going to go in. Your bag is going to go right here. Your phone's going to go in your bag if if they have it with them. Then I'll teach them where the stands are, where the chairs are, all the things. Here's what I expect you to do first. I, I walk them through it. Even if they've done it before, I try to be very cautious of that at the very beginning so that, you know, we don't have to do it more than once. And so that the classroom environment then, day after day, they know exactly what they're going to do. I teach them how to rack the stands, how to rack the chairs, because you can do it the wrong way and the right way where they're putting their instrument, where the pencils are, you know, all the things, the things that I think people take for granted sometimes, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to hear about some of your procedures that you do that really allow your students to have the best rehearsals. Yeah, it sounds like, it sounds like your kid, your procedures are very clear to the kids. Um, well, I, I think teachers should have clear, concise procedures and, and, and maybe for every domain, like the locker room or the main band room or rehearsal, keep it to about three to five. Um, so the, and they should always be phrased in the positive too. Um, so my procedures in, in my class, we have a way, a way that we come in the room and there's procedures in the locker room. And, and these are posted as expectations on, on the wall. Um, and then we have our rehearsal expectations. So those are five rehearsal expectations. And um, I have, and these change every year. So this year's rehearsal expectations like version 6.0. Um, right. And, but, but I find that if I can do, if children can do these five things, these five behaviors, it goes a really long way in our classroom. So here's what they are is number one, um, Barbara Bain members give the podium 100% of their attention. Number two, they only worry about themselves. Now, number three is actually my favorite, but this one is hardest to word in the positive uh, because number three, uh, most uh, disruptions in a classroom are from young adolescents are attention-seeking behaviors. So my number three is Barbara Band members are content without always needing the attention of others. Mm -hmm. um, Very good. Number four is respond appropriately. And number five is respectful of everybody's time. And I, I just think if the kids can do those five things and we talk about it, we talk about through rehearsals and I don't stand in front of them saying number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, every single day. No, we, I don't bore them into submission with that, but you know, as they come up throughout the rehearsal, I, I really like how after we stopped and I, and maybe there was a random dis disruption in the room or announcements came on. I'll say, guys, I really appreciated how you all responded appropriately and didn't overreact to 
somebody getting called to the front office. You know, I'll, th I'll thank them for following those ex expectations throughout a rehearsal. You know, it's funny when you just think something's important as a teacher, if you make a small list like this and you post it in the classroom and you talk about it, it's all of a sudden those things, I mean, it, it's so simple to say, I think these things are important. So let's write these down and make them a big deal. And all of a sudden they're fixed. I mean, it's like on the musical sense, it's like the people who say, I'm going to make tone number one, you know, right. and then right. so they'll say tone is the most important. Let's focus on tone. And then all of a sudden your tone is better. It's really not rocket science, right? You just have to, you have to figure out what is most important to you, whether it be classroom expectations or whether it be musical expectations. And you just uh, make it clear to the children and that's how you get them to do it better. Right. Nobody's going to put tone on a podium on a pedestal unless you do. But don't you think that from if we go back to what we talked about previously about going down to the cafeteria and hear the different conversations, mm -hmm. if you go into some of those classrooms, you're going to see these lists of 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 things. And it, I think what our listeners need to realize is five, maybe six, nothing more, because you're never going to accomplish them. And you aren't really thinking about what's going to make your classroom be a manageable situation. I think people get carried away with making huge lists that are never going to work. Right, right, right. There's a funny comic that was out from the far side where this teacher is and the bottom of it says Miss Mutner like to go over a few of her classroom rules. And it says no dorky hairstyles, no crying in class, no smiling, no eating, no sweating, no talking, you know, and it just goes on forever. And I, I could imagine being 12 years old and looking at that. And being like, okay, well, I am going to have a dorky hairstyle, <laughs> mm -hmm. and and because and also sometimes when you bring a lot of attention to things, the kids do that thing, you know. Um, but yeah, th three to five, maybe six is is probably ideal. Trying to keep it real simple. Yeah, if you can't remember it, it's it's too much. Right. Um, also, if you can't, you're gonna you have to be ready to enforce all those things. Right. Because right. they're going to test you. So if you say you have to do X, the first kid who does it, because they're going to do it. If you don't respond appropriately, they're just going to go, well, that one doesn't really count. I'm just going to, we're going to keep doing that one, you know? So, you, you know, clearly as a teacher, I'm sure you have these expectations, but then you follow it up daily and they have to meet those unless they can't, or they can't rehearse. Right. And teachers have to persevere. Teachers have to, I don't like Maybe this isn't the best phrase to be more stubborn than the children, mm -hmm. but maybe at least prevail. Um, and because if you're going to draw a line in the sand, if you're going to establish consequences, you have to be prepared to follow through with them. Well, and um, going back on what you said earlier, being consistent by having those standards established makes it a more educational environment. And, and another point is like, because of what your standards are, you can teach tone, but if somebody puts tone at the top of the list and the classroom's out of control, right. you're never going to get tone. You've got to get your, your environment under control so you can teach the musical concepts you want. Yeah. They have to know how to learn. You can't right. teach Correct. any pedagogy if they don't know how to function in that environment in your class. And, and post-COVID has taught us well that we have to reteach our students how everything, to learn. Everything. Yes. <laughs> Every, everything. It's been hard. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about consequences in a talk from Dr. Tim Lotzenheiser comes up to me 
um, he talks about, um, he said, I forget what his phrase was, but it was basically, it, I don't give, con- I, I don't tell consequences ahead of time. I don't give predictable consequences. If you this, then you this. Because sometimes, especially as the kids get older, they're going to say, well, that's worth the consequence for doing whatever it's going to be. Um, and he told a funny story about it. But sometimes not having a certain consequence given to the kids allows you to have the flexibility to change that consequence given the certain situation. Right, so that's, right. that's something I, I tend to do. Um, right. All right, let's go over some of the, the your podium time procedures, things that you do while you're in rehearsal and you're on the podium, right. things that you insist on. Um, so there's, there is a flow, a, a sequence that, um, our associate band director, Brad and I, that we work on and anybody that comes in our room. Um, so we're teaching middle school and we're teaching posture, breath control, instrument hold. And so we, we have, uh, we have our set position and our playing position. A lot of bands call set position, writing position, but I've always thought that sounds like we're about to play. Um, so we'll come to set position and, you know, whatever instrument horn on their knee, they're engaged, they're looking at you. But here's the important part. I don't move on to bringing the horn up until set position is perfect. I'm thanking everybody that's doing it correctly. If somebody's doing it incorrectly, then I'm thanking the kid next to them uh, for doing that correctly. And I'm just ready for the room to look right. And this is where I, I see a lot of young teachers make the mistake. They go, they they uh, have the kids start playing before the kids are even sitting correctly. Um, and so once the room's looking right, the kids are on the edge of their seats, their stands are pushed back, raised up, looking at you, then we'll bring the instruments up. And now if they're holding the instruments, how we taught them to, where the um, directional instruments like trombones and trumpets are slightly below parallel, but enough for me to see down a little bit down the bells of their instruments, um, oboes, clarinets at 45, everybody looks good. We're holding the instruments correctly. Um, then we'll start playing. Then if the kids don't take a breath how we want, I, because I always feel that like anytime that you go on, you're giving and there's uh, things that um, that can be corrected and you don't, you're giving tacit approval for that behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So if the breath is not correctly, we'll stop and and talk about the breath. We we talk about low, middle, high from lungs filling up. Do what Freddie Martin teaches, which, which is this he calls this upper respiratory expansion, and we have to see that with the kids, and then we go on. Then at the end of the exercise or the music, we'll cut off. The kids have their horns up; they're looking at me. But if their heads go left or right or they react to the situation, then we I say, here's the one thing that we're working on. We're working on remaining silent after the cutoff and following directions, Uh, because band, if you if you think about it, for somebody that's 11 years old, band is might be the first time in their life where they've gone back and forth between 100 decibels to almost no decibels, Mm -hmm. just back and forth. And it's very disorienting to children. And so the initial gut visceral response will be to react and say something about that or even just like be a little bit overwhelmed the first time they start playing in band. So you have to you have to really teach them how to react, keep their horns up. And and I, I tell them, you guys just had a chance to make some noise. Now it's my turn to make some noise and this is my turn to give you feedback. 
Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of young band directors probably don't practice that one thing enough about what the cutoff looks like and the 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 time for them to teach because I'll, I'll watch a lot of bands with with um where the director will cut off and those kids instantly start talking to each other and they're not really hearing the director and the director's having to talk over them too you so, are a hundred percent correct no thank you so talk about um you know i think i think well i, I think that the fast-paced rehearsal keeps kids mm -hmm. more engaged um, right. not like overly fast but a, a well-paced rehearsal but at the beginning that's tough until they're following procedures so how can how can new teachers achieve a fast-paced rehearsal while also going through all these steps and managing that behavior well i think another skill to build outside of building the class and maybe it's it's in conjunction with classroom management Another skill to build is, is your ability to engage. Um, are you the most interesting thing happening in the room? Are you more interesting than a cell phone or the neighbor? Your mm -hmm. ability to change the pitch of your voice, the excitement levels, your ability to really get excited about the most inane thing like instrument posture and try to maybe even some sometimes like gamify things. Um, so sometimes we'll, when we're doing these procedures, how to keep their attention. Uh, um, so we come to set position and they watched me about to hit the start on, on, I call it the doctor from Dr. B. The kids know of it as the doctor. I say, as soon as the doctor hits, we're coming to playing position, but you know, I'll gamify it by, by like, I'm looking in the room to see who's the first one to come up to playing position. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they're real quick, boom. And, and they'll come real quick. Hopefully they're not hitting their instruments on their stance and because they're so excited by doing that. But uh, but they'll be real quick and they'll be really proud of themselves. But, you know, that's that's teaching 12 year olds. You can do that kind of things with 12 year olds. Hopefully it it's not as effective with eighth and ninth graders uh, who might be too cool for those gamified games. But hopefully by then you have won them over and they like music and the music itself is the reward getting to play the repertoire and you're not having by the time they're in eighth or ninth grade having to do um really gamified and trying to make all those inane things like the procedures interesting by that point so you were alluding to podium presence and how we are on the podium and how we need to be more engaging than whatever else are their options you know a lot of people i think are band directors who are like me I would consider myself an introvert and right. at first getting in front of kids, I don't know, is kind of scary still. And, but just, I think we were talking with Matt Dwyer and Jeff was a, uh, recently and Matt referenced having the, your, your teacher mask and what you need to do in right. order to get on your teacher mask. I mean, personally, if I was in front of our faculty, I would probably be very scared. Be like, I don't know. I'd be nervous, <laughs> but you get me in front of a bunch of teenagers. And at this point in my career, you just turn it on and you forget about it and you just go. Um, right. So do you have any tips for younger teachers who are trying to find their podium presence? Um, and as a side note, um, in Westbrook, my wife and I, we move around the room a lot. So when I mean podium presence, I don't just mean on the podium, but do you have any, right. any advice for teachers as they're trying to become their teacher entertainer slash, you know, jokester slash band director slash all the things? 
yes. Um, you, you said a couple things that really hit home. Um, uh, the teacher mass, and it, your teacher, teaching is sort of like acting, um, where you create this character, but it's real and authentic, and it's not fake because it is you, and it is your personality, but it's a version of you. Mm -hmm. And so when, when you stand in front of children, you are this character. A lot of people that know me outside of my classroom are completely shocked. They're completely shocked when they see me in front of kids. And then a lot of kids would be completely shocked if they were to know me outside of my classroom. Because mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm very introverted um, as well. But it, 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 and it really turns around uh, when I'm in front of kids. Um, and I think that that teacher persona, that that person I am, which is me on the podium, I, I think I think comes from a place of uh, really caring for the individuals in the room, really caring for the individuals in the room getting better at music. Um, and really, and and I've gone through phases in my career when I first started out, it was like flight or flight. And that's where that teacher persona came from. But I was so fortunate being in the middle of the Utah desert where I can make all these mistakes and they still loved me anyway for it. Mm. I was really fortunate with that. Then as I experienced that some success um, a, a couple years in, the admittingly, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I think I can because I think a lot of people go through that it became about me a little bit and my reputation and a little bit about my ego um and, totally. and that was 100 and that was something that I was having to work through where back then you know year five year six of teaching I was programming things for me that weren't necessarily appropriate for the children to play uh but I wanted to play that uh, and so I I definitely I can call that a phase because I do believe I've recovered from <laughs> from that. <laughs> um, but not to say that that doesn't lurk lurk and like I would really like to play this piece and and whatnot. And then um, I, I just got to this place more of Zen with I, I've I feel like middle school teaching you grow into it. I don't think a lot of people are natural mid middle school teachers because it is difficult to teach middle school band, but it is something where you do grow into the position. Um, and you have to learn to love the process. You're never going to have an ensemble that plays Lincolnshire Posey. And so you have to come to terms with that. But in, in its place is something remarkably beautiful, which is growth and developing young humans and teaching them what maturity is like and using music to teach them. And then all of a sudden you're able, your teacher persona comes from a place of looking full at a room of children and thinking I'm here because I'm teaching, I'm doing what it takes to teach them to get better at music today. And we're going to have fun doing it today. And we're going to love the process. And hopefully the results will be what we want, but we're going to love the process. Um, so it, that's a probably a long way of saying that it comes from just my opinion, but it comes from a, a, a good bit of soul searching along the way through that your journey too. You talked about people not being a lot of people not being natural middle school teachers. Uh, I think my wife at first, she was like, I'm going to be a high school band director. She is a fabulous 20 year 
band director at the middle school level. She is a, one of those, like you, one of those middle school teachers. You're like, ah, oh, it's just, they can do it. And what she says she loves the most about the middle school age is how excited they get when they learn something new, whether it be something important or not. But they're so excited when something new comes. She's like, at the high school level, it's like, eh, okay, that's new. That's great. But she just loves their enthusiasm for new ideas and new concepts. Oh, yeah. And they're funny, too. And they keep <laughs> it interesting. And they do crazy things. <laughs> so it, it, it's, and you know, I, I just had an advent, uh, um, event at the um, high school I feed into North Cobb the other day and I was I love going over there because those kids are so kind and sometimes they're so loyal and they're like so happy when when you come to visit it's like grandma's coming over <laughs> and and they're so kind but and I, I sometimes I feel like when I talk to my students who are now high schoolers I, I feel like um where I, I just love them and everything they're that they're doing but I'm not as skillful uh like connecting with them now that they're 17 you know mm -hmm. um I, I just feel like it's just easier for me to talk to and connect with children that are 13 um it's it's just i'm it's probably because that's what i'm used to right um and that's what i've done mm -hmm. i it's just easier for me too but i bet you if you were at a high school and you were around those kids you know you would develop what you needed to to be able to relate to those kids more yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I would <laughs> I just think have so. to talk to a lot of the right people and learn from them and figure out what to do and get over that learning curve. Well, you're experiencing all the middle school learning experiences, teaching with the kids every day. And when you teach high school kids, you're experiencing those learning experiences. So you're not having the opportunity to experience the high school level at the moment. You knew them as middle school kids, and you're trying to say, wait a minute, this, this child is speaking much more maturely than, than they spoke when I had him as a student. And it's sometimes when I went from middle school to high school, it's like, whoa, this is this is a big change. And you have to you have to adjust the change. Just like going back to middle school from high school is a big change too. Right, right. It, 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 they're not always the same person. They, the kids change so much. And sometimes I even say this to them. I'm like, look, you're really not the same person you were a year ago or two years ago. I'm the same person I was 10 years ago. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's um, You guys are just changing so much. And when they're, they come, you go up to the high school and they're talking to you and they're 17, you're really talking to a much more of, uh, evolved and changed person by that time. And sure. I don't know how tall you are, but you used to look down at them. And then all of a sudden you're looking up at them. <laughs> right, right. We have a kid who was, you know, like four foot nine or whatever. And then he went to high school and grew a foot and a half. And my wife saw him as a sophomore and he was almost six, six. And we have a picture of it because it's just like he just doubled oh in size. Goodness. It's just it's just crazy. Um, so you, when you have such a great rapport with your students and you you've spent all this time with them. Let's start talking about accountability and behavior interventions. Like how do you actually, when the rubber hits the road and things you need to do in order to successfully maybe uh, scold is maybe the wrong word, but get them back on track. So behavior and inter inter interventions, I think it is important to realize that you're only talking, when you're talking about accountability and, you're, and like how you're following through with consequences, you're only really dealing with 20% of your children. Um, poor teachers will address the entire room and talk to them like that 20% is everybody. 
and you can hear it in their language. It's a lot of don't do this, don't do that. Um, so when so when you're coming up with consequences, just I think it's best to keep in mind that this is for a highly targeted group of, of children. Like the um, I, I like using the RTI model, um, and which is. 80, your instruction, how you address the room is 80% of the kids, 15% are that tier, tier two, and then that heavy in, intervention is only 5%. Um, so when we're talking to the, about those tier three and tier, tier two kids, that 20% where you have to really make sure that you're following through with consequences, um, it's best that you do some kind of tiered system before there is a consequence, a, a tiered intervention. And so, for example, that tiered intervention could be, like I mentioned before, thanking neighbors for a pro, let, let's say there's a trumpet player, figure that a, a trumpet player is not paying attention. So a trumpet player is not engaged in, in, in the classroom, then you're thanking the neighbors for paying attention. You know, thank you, Sam, for, for looking at me. And, and hopefully they get the hint. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes you'll thank the neighbors and make eye contact with that kid at the same time. Um, and so then the broad generalizations, okay, trumpets, I think it's, I, I think we need to, you know, make sure that we're setting with good posture or whatever the correction is, make the broad generalization to the group, um, making eye contacts, waiting for appropriate behaviors. You know, if, if that child is not getting the hint, um, what you do is you issue the consequence and try to do it in a way to protect their autonomy, try to, and so they can save face. Um, so that they can, um, and you try your best to do it privately. That's not all always the situation, but mm -hmm. um, that's what you do. Um, so again, mentioned earlier, do you know why I'm talking to you? Um, you know, you give them, make a teaching moment, you give them an opportunity for redemption and praise the corrected behavior. Um, so the consequences should be whatever is established at your school. Um, for if I, if I have to get to there with a child, it's an email home the first time, and this is just our school interventions here. Email home the first time, email home the second time, detention third time. We have something that's called in-team isolation, where they, if they get to that fourth peer consequence with you, they spend all day with you like it's ISS. Um, and then five would be an office referral. So just just to recap, just a tiered in interventions in the classroom, trying your best not to make a public display out of it. Um, I heard somebody very smart, um, uh, Nola Scott Jones. Nola Scott Jones um, said at a talk, I heard, heard her say that, you know, arguing with a teenager is kind of like wrestling in the mud with a pig. Both of you guys will get dirty and the pig likes doing it. Yep. And so, you know, you try not to have that, that, um, enter that uh, argument in front of the class or what, what, what not. Um, so yeah, in a nutshell, the tier and interventions and then the, the school, what, whatever the school policy is. And I, I love the, the um, line that you have that says that I think fixes a lot of problems before they begin is the line that says, make sure that you're the most interesting thing happening in the room. I'll right. say that again. I just, right. I love that. Like if uh, usually if your kids are be misbehaving, it's because they have time to misbehave. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're using attention seeking behaviors. And if, if that's one of your expectations is that you don't always need 
everybody's attention. You know, you might need the teacher's attention, but you don't always need your peers' attention during a rehearsal. Um, if that's an ex expectation and you're making sure that you're more interesting than their neighbor, then that goes a long way. I also think it's important to understand the difference between teaching high school and beginning band or middle school band, how it's so different. I mean, I'm very lucky. My wife has trained all of the students and everyone who comes up has had four years of Mrs. Smith and they know how to run a rehearsal. So wow. I have to do less of that. You know, when you're the middle school teacher or the elementary school teacher, whatever it may be, you're establishing those norms and those routines. You're doing the hard work and the high school teachers get the brunt of the reward from the work that you're doing. So yeah. I try to say this a lot on the podcast that, you know, a lot of high school teachers think it's about the high school and it's about them, where the middle school is an autonomous program that should be a program in, in itself, which also feeds a high school. But, you know, you are doing the, the hard work at the middle school level. I, I strongly believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's, it, it, it's probably really easy for you and your wife to um, collaborate and have a, a sixth grade through 12th grade system too. So I'm sure that um, you're very fortunate. I'm very, job. it's, I am. Um, it's because I listen to her. <laughs> <laughs> you're smart, <laughs> not just band stuff. Yes. You're smart. All right. Let's talk about student engagement. Student engagement. Um, So engaging students, I think there's a difference. And this is a conversation I just had with my, um, my student teacher is she's gotten real good at using the strategies and has gotten the rehearsals very quiet, and which is good and which is amazing. A student teacher can do this with 12 year olds in the room. It really is impressive that, mm -hmm. that somebody 22 years old can do this with 12 year olds. Um, and so she's gotten really good at getting the kids quiet. And so we had the conversation, I pulled her aside and I was like, okay, now that they're quiet, understand that there's a difference between being compliant and engaged mm -hmm. and they're not always the same. Um, and so, and I've seen band rooms and I've seen band rooms of band directors who've touted that I've got very good classroom management. And in reality, what they're very good at is getting children to be very compliant, <laughs> is getting children to, you know, they're just because they're quiet does not mean they're, they're working hard. Um, so I, I, one of the first things I tell kids when, um, when they start working with me, that it's not good enough to just be quiet. That's not good enough. Let's, let's, let's talk about what, what goes past that. You have to be engaged. Um, and Band rooms where kids are just compliant, I, I think there's also a relationship where those kids might be also afraid to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And it's not a safe environment. Uh, failure is a bad word in that classroom rather than a good word. Um, making a mistake isn't part of the learning process. It's part of the process that might get you yelled at. Um, and so trying to think about... Um, I don't know, like the growth mindset, Carol Dweck, um, about some of that literature, about what your classroom environment should look like as far as having the attitude where mistakes are welcome, mistakes are celebrated. Who um, I have a friend that tried some, she, she just conducted an honor band and she's like, okay, I tried something different, Robert. 
Um, they a lot of these kids seem very scared to make mistakes. They're being very timid. And so what she did was she said, all right, guys, who here made a mistake? And none of the children wanted to raise their hands. But then one kid finally raised their hand and she just celebrated and cheered that. And then some other kids started raising their hand and they're honor band kids. You know, they want to do well. They want to please. They want to make music. You know, they're not um, doing this for um, for this reason or that, but they're wanting to do well. And so she was starting to cheer all these mistakes. And then she focused the rehearsal. Let's talk about making mistakes. There's different types of mistakes, but number one, mistakes have to always be backed by effort. And so I, I think when kids have that freedom and they feel safe, um, that's when you get bands that aren't so timid sounding. When, whenever you guest conduct a band and you stand in front of the band and they sound just crazy timid and all their mistakes happen, not because of lack of effort, but because um, they're not playing with enough confidence. I think that tells you a little bit about the environment in that band room before you stepped in there. Uh, one of the things I used to say to my kids was, if you're going to make a mistake, make it big. And the reason I want you to make it big is that I know what I need to help you with. If you if you hide, I can't help you get better. And, you know, there's always the jokes that goes with that. Right, and, right. and then some kid will blat out. So they said, well, that's not the type of mistake I'm talking about. But I think I think that's what we need to teach kids that make mistakes. And, and we have to teach them that when you play professionally, you're going to make mistakes. And it's how you approach the mistake and get beyond it. That's the important factor. So right. don't be afraid of it. Oh, when I, and, and I tell the kids when I make a mistake in a professional situation, it's to me, it's a three alarm emergency. I am like focused. I'm tapping out rhythms. I'm figuring out stuff, you know, because, you know, my personal pride and what professional musicians do is they try to do it just once. And they, they, they try to fix it. And so we communicate to the kids, if you make a mistake, make a big, try your best to do it once. See right. if you can challenge yourself to only do it once. And, and mark on your music what you can do to fix it. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Uh, all those things you guys are talking about, those also make for better, more musical bands. The bands that are afraid to make mistakes are not going to play as musically. They're not going to have as high quality music. It's going to be timid. They're not going to be the individual expression is not going to be there. So I bet your bands play expressively, Robert. I'm just guessing. Um, <laughs> I, well, I always feel, you know, you're a teacher and you're always like, it could be better. It could be better. It could be better. Well, but, yes. Um, one of the things about middle school band is like you get to a point with them in March of eighth grade year and you're like, yes, I could have this band forever. Then it's time to give them to the high they go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, hear, I hear about that as well. Um, let's talk about some ways that you motivate students. Um, you have something in here that you reference called self-determination theory. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know what that means. But it seems to take up a big part of your um, presentation. So I'd like to hear about it. Well, self-determination theory is like a meta theory. It's... Um, it's a lot of motivational concepts, like old stuff, going back to like Albert Bandura um, and some some of the old self-efficacies. I mentioned Carol Dweck earlier, um, a lot about um, 
another theory that's called expectancy value theory. And it's just kind of one umbrella. And this has become very in vogue lately in uh, music education research and because it's just an umbrella term. Um, if you've used, if you've ever read the book um, Drive by Daniel Pink, have, have you heard of that book? I have heard of it. I have not read it. Um, so that, that there's three components of Drive by Daniel Pink called uh, that if you're teaching for autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Um, and and uh, and that's very popular in my circles. And I think a lot of people in Georgia know that book and read that book. Um, there's enough people that people listen to that advocate that book. Um, but self-determination theory, um, I, I, I mentioned Drive because it's kind of a, a bridge. Um, instead of autonomy, mastery, and purpose, the basis of it is that there's these psychological needs that need to be met. Um, and those three major self psychological needs are competency, which you can see a link to mastery, Com competency, autonomy, and relatedness. What a right relatedness is, is do children in a classroom feel part of a group? Do they mm -hmm. feel part of something bigger than themselves? Competency is mastery. And autonomy, autonomy is a child's agency there. Um, do they feel motivated to act upon free will? Um, so what I love the best as far as like practical applications of self-determination theory is the idea that extrinsic rewards are a spectrum and that extrinsic rewards aren't necessarily bad. Um, when I first started doing graduate school uh, for my master's degree, I just got in certain research that confirmed my biases. And I, I got into thinking, I am only going to teach the intrinsic love of music. And that's all. And I was so wrong. But I was like, I'm only going to teach intrinsic <laughs> love of music. I'm not going to be the golden stand guy. I'm not going to hand out stickers because that's not intrinsic motivation. And I'm not going to do it. Um, and so I, I learned through a lot of mistakes and being really stubborn about that, actually, that um, that was wrong, where actually the golden stickers, the golden stands, all it is doing is it's an extrinsic reward, but you're meeting children where they're at. Mm -hmm. Do you want them to stay there? No. And, and some people might cite some research. Well, you know, the token economy, the moment you start taking away those rewards, motivation goes down, but the token... The problem with that argument is that um, that that's not that's not looked into like an educational sense as far as you're meeting children where they're at and trying to progress them past that point. So the hierarchy of extrinsic rewards would be something like a kid's not motivated. I don't try and ban. So you give them a reward. And they might say something, I work hard in band so I can get this reward. Then it's your responsibility as an educator to move them up the ladder in motivation. You use that reward because eventually you're going to have to take that reward away. Mm -hmm. So what you're trying to get them to do is make a habit out of something. So the next level would be I try hard in band because it's, it's a habit. Okay, we're still trying to work towards that intrinsic love of music, but at least they're doing it now. They're sitting up correctly. They're holding their instruments correctly. I'm not always rewarding. I'm not always praising it anymore, but they're just doing it out of habit. So I get to praise tone quality now, you know. Um, so then the next level that you're trying to get them um, to is I work hard in band because it will make me better or it'll make my band better. 
that's still an extrinsic reward, but now they're starting to internalize it. Nobody, um, it, it's something more internal. I work hard in band because I know it'll make me better. I practice at home because I know it'll make me better. So that's at least better than I practice at home so I get a good grade, which is a reward. Mm -hmm. I practice at home so because it's a habit, now I practice at home because it'll make me better. Then the next level higher than that would be, I I work hard in band because that's who I am. I have pride in what I do. I am a first chair player. I am an all-state player. I work, that is my identity. So now they're getting really, really high up in, on that motivational ladder. And the only thing that's higher than that is I work hard in band because I love music. Um, kids will bounce all over that ladder. Kids mm -hmm. will go, will, will finish one day in class and go down. Um, I, I just had a Cobb Wind Symphony concert where I play saxophone and Cobb Wind Symphony concert and, uh, for this ensemble. And I'll go home and practice my part because I know it'll make me better where I'm like in that middle rung on the ladder or I'll practice my part because I have a lot of pride. I don't want my colleagues, the whole band's band directors. I don't want my colleagues to hear me miss notes. And so that's gonna be a little bit different than I practice the Glasnost concerto because I love playing the Glasnost concerto or that I used to sound good 20 years ago playing the Glasnost concerto. So I kind of want to remember that. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, that latter part is, is me being intrinsically motivated. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's our responsibility to use that information to start with the gold stickers, the gold stars, the golden stands, and to give them those rewards and use that as a carrot to go up that ladder to hopefully where things become a habit, where they, they know that they're setting goals, where they know they have pride in themselves to ultimately they're doing something out of love for music. And that was like a quick crash course of self-determination theory and in the band class and I could talk forever about that that was part of my dissertation um but I I hope I was I was clear about very much that. thank you one of the motivation one of the motivation tools my wife uses uses is band karate I assume you know band yes. karate so yes. if people haven't heard of band karate I don't haven't used it yet even though my students at the high school want me to um you know where you set aside however many belts you want per grade and mm -hmm. then you know, number 41 is the red belt and number 62 is the green belt and whatever. And then they, they get the little color ribbon and they put it on their instrument and, and that's the whole thing. And sometimes they get recognized at concerts as well. So band right. karate, I thought of that because that's one of the things we do here in my town. Um, all right. Teaching sure strategies. They, they, they love it. Yeah. Teaching strategies that also help with classroom environment. Um, I love this one that you said, don't worry about being behind. Oh, I'm always worried about being behind. Always teach, and I'm glad we're doing this. Always teach them where they're at. We are band teachers. There are no national standardized tests and nobody lays out the curriculum for us, but us. Be sure we have evaluation, but it's up to you to choose a curriculum that the children will be successful at. That's like programming 101. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, learning more about that. I I've worked hard on that a lot. So don't worry about being behind. Like you mean like the music's not ready for the concert. We're behind in learning the music or we're not good enough. We're not playing hard enough music. Or uh, where you are in skills in the curriculum. Um, very seldom do I ever finish book one of sixth grade. I, mm -hmm. I just don't care. I don't care if I finish book one the entire year. We just finish where we finish and pick up the next year. Um, because it, it's the most important thing is to always meet the children where they are at. I, I think when you start 
not doing that, you might be, and, and maybe I'm being overly judgmental saying this, but you might be doing it a little bit more for yourself than for the children in front of you. But I, I think it's really important to teach them exactly where they're at. Can I ask you a question? When yes. you say book one, does that mean in your district, you start instruments in sixth grade? Yes. Okay, so you're like the where I came from. We didn't have elementary band. We started in middle school, and that's where the whole ball started rolling. Right. And uh, I agree with you. You know, you'd go to meetings with the multiple band directors and say, well, we're on book, it's uh, June, we're on book two, uh, page such and such. And I'm saying, okay, how do they play? Right. And, and you know, and you don't, nobody knows what the obstacles every person has in their teaching environment that may slow things down, but quality supersedes quantity. There's also right. people who like to say, my band is playing this piece. What they really mean right. is that piece is in the band's folder. They take it out and they're attempting to play the piece. But it nice. doesn't mean your, your ninth graders can play the whole suite just because you gave it to them and they're working on it. Right, right. Um, yeah, and, 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 and what, if, what, if your pro, what if you design your program where there's more of an exponential increase in, in skill? Um, one of my good friends, and, and he has a fantastic program at Harrison High School. He's the director of bands at Harrison. And um, the marching band's incredible. Concert band program's incredible. But he always tells his kids, we go really slow in the beginning so we can go crazy fast later. So we can go super fast later. And and for me, I, I take that as I just want to make sure everything's correct. I want to make sure the faces are right. The embouchure are the right shape. The instrument holes are right. I, I want to make sure that's all correct. So I am in no hurry to get through uh, book one, essential elements, book one, sixth grade. Um, I, I was in a school district where we went to a school district meeting. And and um, that school district, we all started in the, in the seventh grade. They were junior highs. And um, but it was a beginner band class. And, and one of the band directors, they said, yeah, it was like January or February. Yeah, we're, we're in the middle of book two. That's crazy. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but it would be crazy for my kids and my teacher. Maybe they sound one. I never heard them, but I just couldn't imagine myself in that position. There's a, a couple districts in the state I'm from that would have teacher evaluation based on a curriculum that said what page each kid would do each week. And mm -hmm. a teacher would get a positive evaluation if they got to such and such page. And uh, I always looked at that as, well, what are you putting first? The development of the child or a piece of paper to say that you're going to get a good evaluation. Mm. And they, 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 they agreed, but they couldn't fight back because the district supervisor said, that's how I'm going to evaluate you as a teacher. And uh, they readily admitted that their attrition rate from middle school to high school was enormous because the kids couldn't meet the expectation of where they had to be in ninth grade in high school. Right. And, uh, unfortunately, that's what we do nationwide to math teachers. It is. Mm -hmm. They, they are right. all told what to talk when and, and they don't have the same kind of autonomy over their curriculum that we do. And yeah. the fact that we have that in for the most part, most school districts, most of us is pretty hands off and we create our curriculum. That's a huge advantage. So speaking of curriculum, I'd, I'd like to close here with I haven't prepared you for this, but um, I'd like you to share any band pieces at the middle school level that come to mind 
that you think people should know that you really like, whether kids just really like them or they are great teaching pieces. I'm going to throw one out that I really like by Gene Milford called Royal Oak. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's a, a, a wonderful piece of music. Um, Jeff, are there, are there any that come to your mind? I know you haven't taught middle school in a long time. Theme and Variations by John Kakavis. Oh, yeah. okay. Wow. Um, I love the um, Carl King, um, that whole series, Heritage of the March series that Swearingen wrote, yeah. and they're all black covered. I, I think it's so, they're so easy to teach. It's so easy to get bands to sound good playing them, and the kids enjoy them. I love those marches. Um, Rob, Bob Sheldon has a whole series of um, of ballads that are like grade one, grade two ballads. American Hen Tune, Dorian Dreamscape. He, he's got like five of them um, that are really, really easy for young bands to play lyrical legato style. And um, um, Brian Balmages has some too. Uh, mm -hmm. Rippling Watercolors is like that, uh, which we've already played. My coworker has to tell me no, when I, when I'm like every year, I, I just let's play rippling watercolors, Robert. We just did that, <laughs> so he 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 puts his foot down and tells me no, but it always comes up in conversation. Um, I love Claire Grunman, Kentucky 1800 for yep. an eighth grade band. Um, that's a pretty mature eighth grade band. Um, I I think that is a great band work uh, that's approachable for them. And then going back to Sheldon. Um, God, long, Longford legend, but a little bit easier version of that is what's that? Um, one that's the little easier version of Longford legend. I don't it's know. In, it's in six eight. Um, oh, it, it will probably come to me after this podcast. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, you mentioned two of my favorite band pieces in passing. One is Kentucky eighteen hundred, and another one is Longford legend. Yeah. So. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Anything you want to mention before we take off for the day? Well, I think we went over a lot. Um, I do want to say um, that everything I talked about is not my stuff or stuff I came up with. I've just watched people a lot better than me or read stuff from people a lot smarter than me. And all I've really done for these presentations is put the ideas together. But um, I really appreciate the invite and appreciate the conversation we had today. We sincerely appreciate you taking your valuable time and listening to the Growing Band Director podcast. Your students are very lucky to have a band director like you. If you have any suggestions for episode topics or think you have an area of expertise to share on a show with us, please reach out. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your band director friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our YouTube channel, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to The Growing Band Director. See you next week.